Hello, it's me. Welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we have a very special full-length interview for you with multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, and record producer Todd Rungren. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drums all day, Mike. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we are excited about playing the full interview with Todd. This is a really exciting opportunity because uh, he attended the uh, NAM show in 2014 and picked up an award from the, uh, the the tech awards, actually, from the tech folks. And we were able to squeeze in an interview with him, which was absolutely fantastic. I'll give you a couple of my favorite highlights about the actual interview throughout this podcast. But let's just jump right into this. I know you guys want to hear his story, and uh, we want to play it for you. So here is our full interview with Todd Rugren. Todd, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So in talking about your passion and how it developed in music, did you have a lot of music in your house when you were a kid? Uh, we did. Both of my parents were um, music fans. Uh, my dad fancied himself as something of a singer, but he never performed. He just, well, he performed in the car, you know, <laughs> but he would sing along with Howard Keel and, uh, uh, <laughs> and Roger Whittaker. And uh, he... Uh, had a special passion for contemporary classical music and show tunes mm. and would not allow pop music or rock music to be played in the house when he was around. So the result was that my musical foundation is a little bit broader than a lot of other musicians just because of the variety of music that I was more or less forced to listen to. <laughs> But I enjoyed it, you know, I mean, there is, you know, there's classical music and there's classical music, unfortunately my dad had somewhat sophisticated taste in that regard, and so I would be listening to, you know, Ravel and Bernstein and people like that, as opposed to something more schlocky like Wagner. Very interesting. <laughs> and so what was the first instrument you picked up? Uh, the first instrument I ever laid hands on was a piano that my grandmother had in her attic that she never played. I don't know how she came by it. I think she, uh, she bought a, a whole building at one point um, with a storefront in it and, and there was a bunch of stuff there that had been left behind and I think they left the piano. And I was only maybe five, six, seven and I would go up to the attic and I would just get all transportive and just play what I thought was spontaneously genius music and uh, yeah I still recall that it you know really was for me the idea of being able to use my hands to make music was completely transformative and 
at the time, I didn't know where that would take me, but I knew that you know music was something important to me. And uh, eventually, I got fascinated with the guitar, and uh, actually learned how to play the guitar because I had a guitar at home. Um, Did and you take lessons? The way I got the guitar was the local music store had a deal that if you sign up for like three months worth of lessons, you could get a guitar for like $25. A really awful Korean-made acoustic with action this high. Um, <clears throat> I took the lessons, but I hated the lessons. Uh, all of my natural instincts were not what they wanted me to play. They kept saying, pick down, pick down, don't pick up. I said, pick the way I feel like, <laughs> instead of, you know, trying to develop this, you know, particular kind of technique uh, before you had ever picked out a melody. And I had an ear for music, so I, when I wasn't taking lessons, I would go home and learn the songs I wanted to. And I think the very first song that I learned to pick out was, um, it was either Walk, Don't Run by The Ventures, or it was the Christmas song by Alvin and the Chipmunks. But I picked it all out by ear and it totally stunned my parents and my, and my teacher. And uh, as soon as the three months were up, I was out of no more lessons. <laughs> That's fantastic. So as a kid that, I mean, at that point, were you sort of hooked on it and you really thought this is what you wanted to continue to do? Yeah, outside of... Uh, outside of my house. Well, during the day my mom would play <clears throat> would play the radio and that was all like that was more or less pop music of the of the 50s, Johnny Mathis and Patty Page and that sort of thing. So, and she would sing along with that. And I liked some of the songs and then some of the songs meant nothing to me. And uh uh, the neighborhood, though, was, uh, even though we were in an all-white kind of post-war housing development out in the suburbs of Philadelphia, everybody st that I knew seemed to listen to the same radio station, which was, uh, I can't remember the call letters, but it was a DJ named Jerry Blavitt, and he played pretty much exclusively R&B music. So that's where a lot of you know people from Philadelphia, like me and Daryl Hall and other people, that's why there's some assumed similarity or, or cross-pollinization because we tend to have the same influences. And a lot of that has to do with the, with the radio in Philadelphia. We were fortunate enough to be like right at the Mason-Dixon line. You know, <laughs> you go any further south and they call R&B records race records, you know, in those days. And so that was another, you know, a further influence. And, you know, I wasn't much interested, I was never into like the Elvis era, the era of the pretty boy front man, you know, where if you weren't, you know, handsome and swivel hipped and you really didn't fit into the music business in those days. So I, uh, I was really happy when the Beatles came around, you know, that was the new formula. Next month is the 50th anniversary of when they were on Ed Sullivan. Do you remember that? I do remember. It was one of the few moments in which my dad, well, my dad would watch the Ed Sullivan show anyway, so he kind of was too weird for him to t change the channel just because the Beatles came on. So we all got to watch the Beatles. 
Uh, I don't know what my dad's actual opinion of the Beatles was. You know, I think he may have been bemused by them in, in some sense, but of course it wasn't his music. But I imagine, you know, he softened up a little bit when they did Yesterday. Something like that. That was that's like a grown-up song. <laughs> <laughs> but your opinion was what? Well, you know, I had heard the Beatles certainly before that. You know, it wasn't like that's the first time I ever saw the Beatles. Uh, I actually saw a picture of the Beatles. There was a small article in the Time magazine, and I remember I was in the school library just looking through the Time magazine. They had a little thing down in the bottom that said, "These four guys." are like the biggest thing in England now and the reason why is because their hair is long. And I thought, cool. <laughs> but I had no idea what they sounded like, you know, from that. You know, it was still a couple of months or so before uh, they would uh, break into American radio. And I think the first time that I heard a song, and it might have been Please Please Me or something like that, I said, that's got to be the Beatles that's so different from everything else that's on here. Hmm. You know, it's a couple guys singing, it's not just one guy singing, you know. That's one aspect of it. And it had this really kind of, you know, because they were playing all their own instruments, there's no strings or slop or, you know, background choirs or anything like that. It was this tight, you know, sound, and I thought, wow, that's got to be the Beatles, and as it turned out, it was. Hmm. And from that point on, I was just like, all, all Beatles all the time. But I was into the whole English invasion. I was into all the English bands, into the Who, and uh, well, I wasn't so much into Dave Clark Five, but <laughs> you know, but the whole English invasion thing was great. The zombies, you know, there was a lot of great music. And then when the whole English blues thing started to happen, that's when I sort of found my niche. It was something I could do as a guitar player because I didn't consider myself a front man. So the English invasion, that really kind of, you know, it also happened around the time I was graduating from high school and I had to make a choice about what I was going to do with my life and I uh, didn't do well enough, in, like I did poorly in school and so I wasn't going to burden my family by going to college and we couldn't get any scholarships or anything like that so I graduated from high school and joined a band right away. And within just a couple of weeks, I was playing with uh, what was then the hottest local band in Philadelphia. Uh, ironically enough, a band that was one guitar player short of having the exact same lineup as the Paul Butterfield band. And that's how I got in the band. <laughs> you know, the guy who was playing rhythm guitar, he wanted to move to the front and play harp. You know, so I got to be, quote, rhythm guitar. But I could do something that the other guitar player couldn't do, which is play slide guitar. And so that got me uh, immediate uh, notoriety. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you how the slide guitar part started for you. <clears throat> it was when I got into, into the blues. And... Uh, Jeff Beck used some slide guitar in a few songs. I remember this, they did a version of a Mose Allison song called, uh, and the Yardbirds, of course, a Mose Allison song called I'm Not Talking. And it's got a whole kind of weird sl snaky slide thing. And I didn't even know what slide guitar was. I thought it was a kind of guitar. You know, he was playing, a I saw him playing a, a Telecaster and I thought, what's that thing down at the end there? Is that what makes that noise, you know? <laughs> and there I had no idea what it was. And, uh, 
eventually I found out, yeah, you're supposed to put something on your finger and slide it around. And uh, at first I didn't know what to do, but I had a friend whose uh, uncle worked at IBM and would bring him like boxes of old parts from card sorting machines. This is back in the 60s. And so I found a pulley about this wide and I filed the flanges off of it and it fit right there and covered exactly three strings. So I developed a slide technique that didn't require an open tuning. I could still just play chords and things like that and then also just go off and play slide. So that got me uh, some distance. Uh, eventually I kind of I lost the slide and so I never went back to slide guitar. <laughs> But by that point, you know, things were changing. You know, uh, Eric Clapton and, and Jimi Hendrix were more or less spearheading the new guitar movement, and I wanted to kind of learn how to play like that. So how did your guitars progress at this time? What were you playing at, at this point? Well, I was playing, until I got out of high school, just crappy knockoff instruments, Japanese and not, not really any real brands or anything like that. I wasn't very sophisticated. The only guitar that I really knew about was a Fender Stratocaster because a friend of mine up the street, his older brother, was in a band. And I got a couple of lessons from him, a couple of brief lessons. But he also, he, he had his pride and joy and showed me one time he had it stored under the couch. He pulled it out and opened it up and there was just, you know, this pristine, Stratocaster in there and I was like you know it was like the holy grail I'd never seen anything like that you know because it had a real finish on it and was solidly built you know and it had style and uh, so I was very envious of that and my first real guitar indeed when I got into the band uh, Woody's Truck Stop I had no guitar at all I was, you know, I'd left home essentially with a typewriter case and my worldly belongings and figured I would find something along the way out there. So uh, I had to get a guitar, of course, and I uh, went to South Street in Philadelphia, which in those days was blocks and blocks of hawk shops, and found a, uh, a Les Paul with the uh, what they call the soap bar pickups, and uh, I think it had had to have been finished. Somebody had taken the top finish off of it, so it was just all natural wood. And uh, this was before people started realizing how valuable these kinds of instruments could be. I got it for eighty-five dollars <laughs> out of the window of a hawk shop, and played it for years. You know, it was my main axe. As time went on, I was able to afford other instruments that I wanted, you know, and so... But my very first uh, was a Les Paul Standard, I guess you would call it, Les Paul Standard, with the white soap bar pickups. Mm. <laughs> Wish I had that guitar today, actually. <laughs> It'd be worth a fortune, for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing how that whole vintage thing started. Uh, yeah, yeah. There was a time when people thought guitars were just like, you know, toys or something right. like that. Yeah. And nobody realized one day Eric Clapton would auction off a single guitar for more than a half a million dollars. So 
Yeah, you never saw that coming. So Mike has a uh, recording button uh, to do the podcast, and we always say that you make sure that you hit the big red button. I saw the light. <laughs> I didn't know how else to set that one up. <laughs> you were thinking about Please. that for a while. Somebody oh, set me free. <laughs> It's our job to try to work in as many songs as possible. I think I did my part. Michelle, you're up next. Oh, goodness. In the meanwhile, um, I'm really enjoying this opportunity to play this interview for you guys. Um, One of my favorite moments behind the scenes of any interview took place during Todd's interview at the NAMM show in 2014 uh, in Anaheim. We were in the Hilton, and we have a special floor there uh, for the interviews to take place, and... Um, it's usually pretty quiet, and we hardly ever get interrupted. So when I was in the middle of Todd's interview and we were interrupted, I, it kind of took me aback. It turns out that my colleagues had run into Ernie Isley walking in the lobby and said, Ernie, would you come up and do a quick interview for us? And we had a backup sort of set up next door. So with me having absolutely no idea what was taking place next door, they did an interview. Now, for those of you who are now starting to think, how are these two coming together? Uh, Many of you might remember that the Isley Brothers did one of the absolute awesome, most amazing recordings of Hello, It's Me. And um, was it one of their biggest hits, actually, in the song written by Todd. So uh, I guess the my colleagues had told Ernie, hey, you know, Todd's in the other room. So he walks in in the middle of the interview and Ernie says real loudly, hello, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave each other a big hug. It was really, really cool. It was fun to be in the room at that moment for sure. Um, and there's another interview you guys should check out. Um, is just uh, Ernie and his amazing contributions to music. Uh, it's always cool to see him walking uh, the NAM show every once in a while. I saw him last year and just thought, this is so cool to be in the same breathing space as this guy. One of my all-time favorite groups, for sure. So if you want to check out any of the other clips like Ernie's, where should they go? They should head to namnamm.org slash library, and it has our full collection there. So, Michelle, tell us what segments of uh, Todd's interview are we going to be hearing next? So next up, you're going to hear a little about a bit about who he's played with, um, kind of his own style, testing out some different instruments, kind of seeing where his niche is. Um, and then he talks a lot about the synthesizer, which is kind of fun. Hey, do you remember hearing Jimi Hendrix for the first time? Uh, on record, I never got to see Jimi Hendrix live. I, I, at, and at the time, I was still pretty much a cream fanatic. Uh, most of the bands that you wanted to see, or many of the bands you wanted to see, would be playing at one of two venues in New York, either at the Cafe Agogo in the Village, or at a place called Steve Paul's The Scene. And I saw, like you know, the American premieres of, of dozens of bands in those two places. But the unique thing about the Cafe Agogo was the way the room was set up. It was a long room, but the stage was in the middle, facing the short way. So if you were a real fanatic fan and you got in there early, you were sitting like, I'm here, and there, like six feet away, is Eric Clapton's Marshall Stack. And I would go show after show after show and get my ears burned off, you know, and like stare at his hands and things like that. So 
there was, you know, certainly a time when I was being heavily influenced by other guitar players. And when Jimmy came out, I was starting to get over that. You know, I was starting to think, you know, you have to, you're never going to be as good as Eric Clapton. You're going to have to find your own thing to do. <laughs> and so uh, I incorporated, I kept whatever it is that I knew from Eric Clapton and just started incorporating other various influences, other guitar players, other, you know, even if it's, even if you just, hear another guitar player play a certain lick and you really love it and you steal it you know that's kind of how you build up your own style by mushing all this stuff together so. and so was there a point where you thought okay i have my own style or it's not something that you're you know completely aware of i mean i never went through the the woodshedding period for instance that eric clapton went through mm -hmm. where he essentially didn't play in front of people he just went away and learned how to play better um, I learned in front of people, <laughs> essentially, so. Um, and I realized at a certain point that I, I wanted to do other things. As soon as I started a band of my own, I realized I had to start writing. You have to have your own material. And uh, once that happened, I started uh, I migrating back to the piano in a way because it's a much more flexible songwriting instrument. You have all the notes all laid out there in front of you. Whereas in a guitar, you, you know, you're limited by the length of your fingers and the six notes and the way they're tuned and that sort of thing. So guitar is great for writing guitar songs, but for many other types of material, the piano is the best uh, instrument. So I started learning how to play the piano. Started dabbling around with the drums. By the time I got to my third record, I was playing all the instruments on the record. It was another kind of uh, something that I picked up from the Beatles on their first album, Meet the Beatles. There's a picture of the band on the back and underneath it, it lists every single instrument they touched during the course of making the record, you know, even if it was just to make one note. And so I thought, yeah, this is how you make records. You make eclectic music and you incorporate all the kinds of sounds and things like that. So like the first Nas record when we went to uh, LA, immediately scheduled a trip to studio instrument rentals and I just walked up and down the aisles with a pad and I said, send those kettle drums over on Thursday, you know, send the tubular bells on Sunday, you know, and you know, just somehow work them into the into the music and that became I guess more or less habitual after a while you know I would at one point I bought an oboe you know I said I like the sound of the oboe so I bought an oboe but actually learning how to play the oboe I mean people blow their brains out trying to play the oboe <laughs> literally you know they stroke out and uh, and so I learned just enough to get a you know a little bit of what I wanted same thing with the saxophone I learned how to play enough saxophone to you know to honk out some harmonies and maybe do a little bit of a you know a wacky solo every once in a while um, <clears throat> so I guess my commitment to the guitar became compromised as time went on but I still play it there was a period, I guess maybe about through somewhat through the 90s and the, well, even back in the 80s. What happened is in, in the late 80s, I determined that the one instrument that I hadn't really spent enough time developing was my voice. 
and uh, so I decided to focus more on singing and I put together a big band where I only play guitar on occasion. I was mostly just fronted and sang. And so during the course of that, I think I developed quite a bit as a singer over time. But my guitar playing sort of atrophied. I didn't play guitar that much. So a couple years ago, I decided I had to make a guitar record. <laughs> and so I made a record called Arena that was all like 70s style arena big chords, you know, and sing-along choruses and that sort of thing. Just to make sure that I would, you know, that I wouldn't lose whatever it was that um, that I had been, uh, that I had struggled so hard in my youth to gain. <laughs> so. Well, I thought, interesting, the, the period of time when you were developing your songwriting skills and, and singing, that was all sort of at the same time? Mm, well, no, actually, when I first started out, I didn't, you know, I, I was a terrible singer when I first started. I was writing the songs for myself, but I was writing them, you know, sometimes in ranges that I could only possibly hit while I was in the studio. I didn't, uh, I had no stamina as a singer. You know, my voice, I'd blow my voice out really easily. And mostly it was because uh, I think the majority of singers, they start singing when they're young. They start singing like in their teenage years, uh, when you have you know in inclinations to yell louder, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. It's real, you know. Voice is a muscle. It's a combination of muscles, you know. But you have to use those in order to get to the point where you're not constantly blowing your voice out. You have to develop them, develop, strengthen them. The most important one is the diaphragm. And I didn't really, I wasn't, you know, I never took singing lessons, so I wasn't really aware of that until like I was getting to my third record. I was singing like a little boy all the time, you know, and I, when I would go out on the road, in those days, you'd play a 40 minute set and my voice would be gone halfway through. But after 20 minutes, I couldn't sing anymore, so it was kind of ridiculous. And then I got into uh, Stevie Wonder. I kind of rediscovered Stevie Wonder. I was always into him, but I rediscovered Stevie Wonder. I got this album called uh, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, which was kind of, kind of a greatest hits album. It had lots, lots of songs on it that, uh, that one would be familiar with. But the funny thing is the way they recorded his voice, which was super compressed, super compression on the voice. You can hear every breath he's taking. And I suddenly realized he's singing from here, you know, he's not singing from here. Uh, he's not getting those fantastically high notes just out of this. He's getting it out of the, because you could hear every time he would go to hit a line, you could hear this thing, you know, where he punch the, you know, he punches diaphragm up, you know, and get some wind behind it. And so after that, I suddenly realized that's, you know, what you have to do. And so I started screaming more. I started working out, you know, it said, you know, you have to scream more, you know, you have to take your voice to that place, you know, with all the power you can muster out of your lungs. And so I started doing that more. Ultimately, I, you know, I, I, nowadays I can scream like James Brown for an hour straight. So uh, it really does make all the difference, you know, knowing, you know, a, a, a couple of singing lessons might have saved me a lot of time and grief. But uh, yeah, I eventually did learn, you know, how it is that, uh, at least from a technical standpoint, you're supposed to sing, and, and that was my third album. So I was still developing as a songwriter and singer, I guess, all through the 70s. Mm. And uh, 
as I said, I felt that you know that I was a much better singer, but I still hadn't tried to you know push it to um, to see what my limits were. I guess as a vocalist, I was still more or less comfortable within the realm that I was in. So in the '80s, I said I got to take the singing more seriously. Well, you did have some success with singing before that, though. Well, yeah, and that's. It's a mixed blessing, you know. Everyone wants to hear "Hello, It's Me." The problem is, I don't have that voice anymore. Mm -hmm. That little boy voice, you know, that is so charming. Like, I'll play the song if you insist. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I meant that. I don't take requests. Sorry. But, and actually, it was the first song that I stopped playing "Hello, It's Me" because it's the very first song I wrote. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So in some ways, it's an albatross. You know, people want to hear the very first thing you did. They're not interested in what you did yesterday, which is the most interesting thing to you mm. as a musician. And that's, you know, I had to deal with that dichotomy constantly. You know, how appropriate is it to try and read the audience's mind and figure out what they want and do that, as opposed to trying to figure out what you want to do, <laughs> you know, what you have, you know, gone to all this trouble to develop the, you know, the techniques to be able to produce. And to me, the biggest fear I have is that I will at some point start just redoing what I've already done. You know, that it'll be a recycling exercise and the big adventure for me will be over. You know, I just keep looking for new things to do because that's what makes it worthwhile for me. Uh, sometimes it's unfortunate for the audience what the end result is, but you know, it's, that's just the, that's the way I play the game, I guess. I wanted to ask you what it was like for you uh, during the uh, the synthesizer boom and all of these electronic instruments coming to be. Was that an exciting time for you? Well, I got into it very early, extremely early. I was into electronic music when I was a teenager. And electronic music in those days wasn't made with synthesizers. It was made with tape recorders and, uh, and uh, test bank oscillators and things like that, you know. No one had yet thought about it as an instrument or attaching a keyboard to it or anything like that. There were anecdotal um, instruments that had been developed, but none of them, you know, like took off. It was the Ondeline and other sorts of bizarre, you know, I think the Mellotron already existed at that point, which you could say is in some sense a sampler. You know, the Mellotron didn't it didn't produce sound in the conventional way, like by a hammer striking a string or, you know, even an organ, you know, like a Hammond organ or something like that. It was literally playing samples, you know. But it was, it was a mechanical device more than anything. And so it was really hard to maintain and practical to travel with and, and that sort of thing. So the whole synthesizer boom, that's probably, that's about circa 1970, you know, right at the end of the 60s, 70s. And I remember the first time I saw a synthesizer in a music store was in Manny's on 48th Street, and they had a brand new EMS Putney synthesizer, which, uh, and they only had this, I can't remember where they had the keyboard that went with it. There was a keyboard that went with it, which was called the Cricklewood keyboard. <laughs> They're all named about the little towns around where they made the synthesizers in England. And, uh, and so EMS, Electronic Music Studios, you know, this, 
they sort of started pioneering this commercialization of the of the synthesizer. They started building them in briefcases, um, all kinds of different formats. And then, of course, there, Moog already existed, but Moog was uh, it was this kind of build-your-own-synthesizer thing, you know. Moog did and still does sell modules, and you have to say, oh, I want this one, this one, this one, and this, you know, and put them in this box here, and then you patch them together with patch cords to get the end result. So that was, uh, you know, a kind of oblique skill for a lot of people, you know, building your own instrument before you could get any sound out of it. Um, Eventually, uh, I remember ARP came out with a model. Maybe the first time I ever played one was an ARP. I think I was doing a project in Canada and they had one in the studio and I was very fascinated with it. I was fascinated with anything. I had knobs and stuff all over it. But the fact that you know it was a, a flexible instrument that you could change the sound and stuff and also make sounds that regular instruments couldn't make. So uh, anyway, they had that one uh, Putney synthesizer and I bought it. And for a while, I was the only one in New York who had one. And I remember uh, Dave from Pink Floyd. Dave, uh, why am I blanking? A guitar player from Pink Floyd. Dave Gilmore, Gilmore sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Dave Gilmore, you know, he, uh, uh, I guess he went to Manny's and he was looking for a synthesizer. And they said, well, Todd Ringward just bought the only one we had. And so he contacted me, he came over to my house, and you know, we spent the afternoon noodling around with it. Wow. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was a very new thing at that particular point, and I put it to work as soon as I possibly could. Um, Did you take it on the road with you? Mm, well, eventually, when, my, when I started Utopia, we took a synthesizer player, you know. And the first one was uh, Jean-Yves Labatt, a French guy who had actually close associations with EMS, so we used all EMS equipment. And he wasn't really a player. What he did was process stuff. We would send the guitar in and he would do all sorts of processes and things to it. And he would make weird noises that sometimes were appropriate and sometimes not. <laughs> and. Uh, <coughs> And by the time we got to like the second album, you know, Jean Yves uh, moved on to other things, and Roger Powell mm -hmm. became a player. And he was actually he demoed synthesizers, you know, and he already had a record out that was like all synthesizers. So that really kicked our game up. Roger really knew what he was doing, you know, and Roger eventually started designing his own controllers. Uh, the very first uh, handheld keyboard controller for a synthesizer Roger Powell designed and had custom made. It was called the Powell Probe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this was before any of those other kind of weird guitar-y looking ones. This was a very spacey looking kind of device. And, uh, yeah, we continued our close association with various kind of synthesizer companies as time went on. Uh, I became, uh, in the late 70s or early 80s, I became a Fairlight endorser, endorsee. Uh, well, I don't know which one it is, but <laughs> essentially I got a Fairlight. So that's when you get into the whole kind of sampling thing. And people tend to ju jumble samplers and synthesizers together. And indeed, there's a lot of overlap in there, but there's a difference between a pure synthesizer, which is essentially oscillators 
that you combine and control in various ways, and a sampler, which essentially digitally recorded sound, actual real sound of real instruments. So that, even though it's technically the Fairlight synthesizer, they're calling it like a music computer now. And uh, actually the evolution of all of this has been remarkable and the greatest evolution in my estimation has been in the last five to ten years. You know, you pioneer a lot of things regarding the, uh, the products <coughs> in, the, in the industry. And one particular I was hoping to talk a little bit about is the in-ear monitor and the mm -hmm. whole thing with uh, Garcia. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was. Uh, it wasn't so much. Well, it was partly the you know the ear monitor, you know the the plain benefits of the ear monitor, which are you know a better degree of personal control over your sound space, and uh, I think that we got we got full, more or less fully committed to them because we were doing a tour where we were the opening, we were touring with the tubes and we were the opening act. The tubes have a very elaborate stage setup, so we didn't have room for a, a lot of setup. And I wanted us to have essentially n no equipment if we could possibly do it. Mm. In other words, Roger had his probe, uh, the bass guitar and the guitar, of course, can be made wireless and therefore untethered and you can wander all around the stage. And we built a, uh, a drum kit, which is essentially was mostly triggers, on top of a motorcycle frame. <laughs> and then mounted that on a spindle. <laughs> so our Willie the drummer, he would play what looked like a motorcycle until we said it's spinning and then he was, I don't know how he managed to do that, but but what we were trying to do was eliminate anything that we could from the stage and so that was when we kind of, I kind of forced everyone in the band to go for the ear monitors. Um, and the technology has evolved quite a bit since then. I mean, I thought that they were improvement. They sound much better today. You know, the drivers are more robust and uh, and the wireless technology is a lot better as well. But, you know, that's part of part of being a pioneer. You know, <laughs> the arrows in the back. You know, we would have, you know, some occasional problems, but I think that that was one of the the less problematic aspects of it. I mean, the great thing about it is once you get everything sort of tweaked in, since you're shutting the ambience of the room out, it sounds the same wherever you go which is a big advantage, especially if you're the opener. Wow, he was certainly excited by synthesizers. <laughs> I mean, I would be too, you know. <laughs> well, you think like Utopia. I remember asking a friend, uh, a neighbor kid, he was really into prog rock. I'm like, what exactly is that? He's like, come over to my house. And he played one of the, one of the I think it was the 1973 uh, debut album. I'm like, ah, okay, that's what that <laughs> is. So it was, what a great introduction to that whole concept. Definitely. I'm not sure if uh, since we're created with the idea of prog rock being developed more, but it definitely happened. Yeah, and, right. And it's a mainstay in that genre forever. No doubt. So next up in uh, Todd's interview, we're going to be hearing his thoughts about our good old boss, Joe Lamont, the CEO of NAM, and uh, their working relationship when Joe was uh, the road manager and helped out with uh, 
some of his tours. So uh, let's continue our interview with Todd Rudgren. I would love to document a few of your memories about uh, my boss, Joe Lamond. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, Joe is... I'm, you know, trying to th think back whether the, at, at the time we thought Joe would ever become the president of NAM <laughs> at some point, you know. Uh, but Joe was always, you know, kind of this very good-humored, straight-ahead, not a lot of funny business, very organized, and... Uh, and he kind of fit in well with our group at the time, which was a very big group. We, I was traveling with uh, um, two horns, two keyboard players, drums and percussion, guitar, bass, three background vocals. <laughs> I think 11 pieces or something like that. So, it's, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, of a handful to manage. But... Uh, we all traveled together, you know, wasn't, we didn't have, uh, in those days, uh, that kind of staggered thing that you have nowadays, you know, where the crew travels, you, you see the crew during sound check, you know, <laughs> and the show, and then you don't see them any other time, you know. But uh, in those days, we used to all sort of travel together. And, uh, and you know, I just remember Joe was just the, really easy to get along with, you know. He's not one of these guys where you have all of these you know, stories about his, you know, his clownish antics or <laughs> anything like that. So, yeah, I wish I had some more interesting anecdotes. He's a boring guy, I'm afraid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a boring guy, boring family man, you know. I heard this, I think he told me about, about once when he handed you a guitar and it wasn't in tune or something. It's a 12-string. Oh, a 12-string. And um, you you gave him a tuner later on to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was uh, also the era when they didn't have you know the kind of uh, guitar techs that we have nowadays. You know, people thought anybody in, anybody in the crew can tune a guitar. Right. You know, but you know, there's a lot of you know the quick string change techniques and things like that. You know, weren't so much those days. In those days, they would just keep lots of spare guitars. <laughs> you know, so you get a spare guitar, and then whenever the string gets changed, it's changed. You know, now my guitar player, he can do it. Change a string in like 90 seconds. You know, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's bizarre. But you also have to, you know, again, you have to you have to know the instruments that you're working with, you know, because all guitars are different. The way that they're set up is different. Guitar players like their guitars to be set up in particularly personal ways. So, yeah, I think uh, it was inevitable that we'd have the, uh, you know, celebrity guitar roadies that we have now. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it like getting the uh, Tech Award tonight? Is that meaningful to you? In the, uh, you know, of the possible awards that one could get, you know, an award that um, essentially honors somebody like Les Paul uh, is going to have a lot more personal resonance for me, I guess, you know, just because of the parallels 
Les Paul pioneered essentially the idea not just a multi-track recording but of recording yourself and that became a big thing for me later in life so when people would thought oh it's so remarkable he did a, played everything himself <laughs> you know I thought all right I'll just you know I won't tell him about Les Paul but uh, <laughs> but also you know anyone who's played a guitar has coveted a Les Paul guitar of some kind and uh, and of course I still own one I except it's the, what, what we call the Mary Ford model, <laughs> you know, the, the, um, the double cutaway, oh, yeah. uh, the one that uh, essentially Eric Clapton made famous. And uh, I owned that particular guitar, the Fool guitar, the one with the paint job on it, for years and years into the mid-90s. And now I have a pretty much near perfect replica of it that I play on occasions. I play it when I go out with Ringo, just for fun, because George owned a guitar for a while. Wow, very cool. Tell me a little bit about your advocacy and your, your interest in music education. Well, it's sort of funny. I never thought of myself as, you know, professorial type. Um, but I do know a few things and I do have a somewhat copious experience not only with my own music but working with other artists and so um, I think the first time I ever you know that I did something like that was a couple years ago it was Indiana University and they have one of the premier music programs in the country it's like them and Berkeley and some place else I can't remember but um, maybe Juilliard and uh, the uh, mandate that I had was actually a professorship, an honorary professorship or an endowed professorship. And it's got a really long name, I wish I could remember, the class of 1966, endowed professorship, blah, 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 blah. And, <laughs> and so uh, what you do is you come in for like 10 days and just did a whole variety of things. I was doing talks, I was doing seminars, dinners, uh, uh, demonstrations, one-on-ones uh, -on -ones with uh, people in the songwriting program, people in the recording program. Uh, I did a talk about uh, the guy who kind of like put my name forward and arranged for me to do this. His name is Glenn Gass and he actually teaches a college course in the Beatles. <laughs> That's an actual credit course. and. Uh, and so I wanted to do something about the Beatles, so I did a talk about all of the things, all of the influences the Beatles had outside of music. You know, like fashion and drugs and religion and politics and all the other stuff that they, that they affected that was non-musical. And that was a lot of fun and interesting. And it was exhausting. Ten days exhausting. I got to, I got to play with that game on a Saturday that I was there. So I got to conduct the hundred-piece marching band playing bang the drum for <laughs> like that. So, uh, so that I thought, wow, that's you know, it's a lot of work, but it's a, a very exhilarating thing, and it's kind of a way of giving back, you know, giving your experience back uh, to a younger audience. And this particular. Um, group that you know the uh, 
the endowers, I guess, of this, the the group of students are called, you know, it's like Rhodes Scholars or something like that. These are students who are essentially like star athletes, Mm. but they are star athletes of the mind. They pay no tuition. They're all fully endowed themselves. <laughs> so these kids are really smart. And one of the ones in the class did go on to become a Rhodes Scholar. So it's also kind of, um, it's not intimidating. I mean, they're really smart, but they're not very experienced. <laughs> so, you know, you have the advantage of that on them. But it's inspiring to see how smart and thoughtful they are. And uh, indeed, and some of my you know exchanges with them inspired me musically to to listen to music that I had sort of dismissed. Like at one point, we were having a discussion about Lady Gaga, you know, and I said, you know, where's the line between the the spectacle, you know, the bizarre costumes and things like that, and the provocative subject matter and the actual musicianship, you know. Because she's she's a real musician. She's an award-winning piano player, and uh, she just declared at some point, "I want to be a celebrity. I don't really care whether people think of me as a musician or not. I want to be a celebrity, so I'm going to wear a meat dress now, <laughs> you know, or something like that." Which you know, you say, "What am I supposed to pay attention to, the song or the meat dress?" <laughs> and uh, but I did go back and listen, you know, and there is, you know, there has been over the past couple of years something of a revolution in record production. Um, a lot of it is, has a, something of a retro thing about it, you know, everyone, everyone's going back to uh, um, stuff that happened somewhere around the between the disco era and the new age era you could say that like daft punk is the uh, ultimate <laughs> because they have fully committed to the disco era <laughs> but there's you know stuff that comes from that you know there was something of the, you know the pounding disco beat was back but also there was all this kind of sound processing and weirdness and noises and other sorts of things and and high dynamics, a lot of dynamics. Things would get loud and quiet and stuff like that, which wasn't, you don't expect a lot from pop music. You expect, it's loud all the time. Or it's sad all the time, whatever. So, yeah, a lot was happening and and a a lot of it has to do with collaboration and I think a lot of it has to do with evolving phenomena like YouTube. That this is how people influence each other nowadays and this is where you discover these new things. You know, I have a philosophical objection to the commoditization of music. I always thought thought it was a phenomenon that wouldn't last and it didn't. (laughs) I mean, it lasted a long time. See, but before we had wax cylinders with recorded sound on it, the only way you got paid was to play. And the thing that people forgot in that intervening time is that somebody got the idea that because so-and-so, let's say Michael Jackson, can go multi-platinum, that you can somehow survive on record sales. And for most artists, it was never possible to survive on record sales. Record sales were actually just merchandising for your live performance. 
and promotion for your live performance. If you had a hit record, hit single and sells a million, you're not going to make a whole lot of money off, off of that after all the promotion and everything and the record company cuts. I mean, the traditional record deal is, artist is always on the short end, you know, less than 20%. And uh, you go out on the road after that, though, you're getting 85% of the ticket price and you, you know, are making a million dollars a month. Um, so I think that there's that reality has sort of come back, you know, it's come back, you know, the performance aspect is really critical uh, to music. You can't just simply make records and expect to survive off of the records. You have to perform. And uh, that aspect of it also has become much more um, accessible, I guess, you know, all of the things, all of the technologies that used to be so much trouble, and I messed with all of them, you know, with lasers and columns of fire and all this other stuff, you know, we messed with all of the aspects of, of making a show, and it's, uh, it just gets, you know, it gets easier, more accessible all the time, you know, all of the barriers to success are pretty much you know disappearing and it's left to you and your enterprise and your and your talent and your sincerity uh, to succeed because all the tools are now all the tools that the record labels used to own now are fully available to you you've got YouTube to promote yourself you know you've got uh, social media to keep track of your fans you know and let them know where you're playing and so that they show up for the gig you've got your Laptop, you know, with the software and, and all of it together costs maybe $2,500 and you're in the recording business. You know, you can get a ch cheesy cheap microphone that sounds better than, you know, like a $1,000 microphone that you bought 25 years ago. Just all of that technology has evolved so far and so fast and all of it has been with the object of putting it into the hands of as many people as possible. And, you know, I, I believe we're reaping the benefits of it. And the benefits may not be, you know, eternal, put it that way, <laughs> you know. Skrillex is not the same Skrillex he was a year ago because he couldn't somehow follow up Bangarang, you know. <laughs> so, but the influence that he had on everyone, you know, is still there and is still ongoing. So that's kind of, you know, the, that's kind of the music scene you want to be in, you know. You don't want to be in the music scene of like Elton John, you know, where you're just write, writing the same song over and over and over again. Um, you want to you want to be in a musical world where there's constant hybridization and and resynthesis and new things to listen to. The old things won't disappear just because there's new things. And if you want to go back and you know wallow in an old soupy ballad like "Hello, It's Me." You can do that. <laughs> Nobody's forcing you, you know, to listen to uh, um, whatever the latest thing is. But uh, I, I don't have any complaints about um, about our situation now, and I don't have any regrets about what happened to the record industry. I warned them, <laughs> and they refused to listen. 
but the, you know, I guess to wrap the whole thing up, music is a music is a service, not a commodity. But I think also artists may start to realize that you know, trying to get there are artists who realize, like Radiohead, you know, realize. Let's just let people pay whatever they want for the music, for the recorded music. Because we're trying to get them to come to our shows. You know, it's promotion for our shows. So take all the music and listen to it for nothing if that's what you want. Just make sure you buy a concert ticket. Because yeah. once they buy the concert ticket, they're going to buy the t-shirt. <laughs> and they may buy the CD that you have at your merch table as well. And this is where probably most artists are going to sell the greatest number of CDs. I mean, you ever see a Jimmy Buffett CD on the charts? No, but he probably sells 10,000 of them <laughs> a weekend <laughs> at his merch table. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, thank you so much for joining us with this lovely interview from Todd Rundgren. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks to hear our next episode. We always enjoy you coming back to listen and leaving reviews of what you think. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Michelle Shedler, and Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.